When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. As powerful as Ammon's missionary homecoming message was, he's not done with his mission. We never are, right? We're getting our ears pierced as we talked about before in Exodus 21. It's not just about mission success. And it's definitely not just about the missionary. It's not even about the missionary's experience with or relationship with God, which is described so beautifully in chapter 26 there still needs to be that horizontal connection with the people that the missionary has taught. Their life goes on. The missionary may have come and given their homecoming address, but what about the people that were left behind? Especially if they're left behind in less than ideal circumstances. The only member in their family or members of a small branch, minority members amidst a majority that doesn't care so much for them. What's going to happen to them? That's why I'm grateful that Alma 26, which comes almost as an interruption, it sort of feels that way if you read straight through, we jump right back into the story itself, the narrative in chapter 27. So go ahead and put up balloons and the big poster on the driveway, right? Uh, come to the airport and rejoice over your elder or sister coming home. It's beautiful. Keep it up. However, may we all keep in mind the long-term experience of those converts left behind in the mission field. What will their ongoing experience be? In chapter 27, verse 1, when the Lamanites that had gone to war against the Nephites had found, after their many struggles to destroy them, that it was vain to seek their destruction, they returned again to the land of Nephi. Now that's good news. They had an easy victory against the people of Ammonihah, for reasons we've already discussed. They couldn't seem to beat the Nephites elsewhere, so they'd finally decide, well, let's give up on this and let's just go home. Now, if it were up to the Lamanites completely, they probably would have ended at that, at least for a time. But unfortunately, they're not alone. Verse 2, the Amalekites, these Nephite dissenters that keep stirring people up to anger, because of their loss, were exceedingly angry. And when they saw that they could not seek revenge from the Nephites, they began to stir up the people in anger against their brethren the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi. Therefore, they began again to destroy them. You see, we saw this back in chapter 24 and 25. People who just refuse to look inward at the person who really needs to change, Lord, is it I, are constantly looking outward for potential scapegoats. We'll take it out on the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Well, that didn't work like we'd planned because we lost more people to conversion than they lost to casualty. So now let's take it out on the Nephites. Well, that felt good, destroying the city of Ammonihah. Well, now let's take it out on the second wave of converts that finally ended up listening to Aaron's words. Burn them all at stake. 
you realize the problem will just continue? Because there's always more scapegoats to find. You're never going to solve it until you solve yourself. So many directions to look to avoid looking inward. Well, now they're back to the easiest target. I mean, they don't even fight back. Let's go destroy the anti-Nephi-Lehi's again. Now, verse 3, this people again refuse to take their arms, and they suffer themselves to be slain according to the desires of their enemies. Now, on the one hand, you think, oh, it happened again, just like before, but not quite like before. There is one major exception. Do you remember when King Anti-Nephi-Lehi first describes the plan. We're going to bury our swords deep. He does say, if they'd come and destroy us, we're not going to fight back. But that was an if. There was hope behind that if. I don't see any hope behind, or even any if, in this second round. God did not save them. Why would he save us? We're no different. They're received up to glory. And we have faith in the same outcome. I'm just amazed at this second group. We don't give them much attention because it all happens so quickly in one verse, in verse 3. They again refuse, they again are slain. But to see their experience through the lens of the first experience, which they were aware of, that's what's amazing to me. We're pretty sure we're going to get a but-if-not experience. Almost positive. And we're okay with that. To stare into the jaws of death knowing full well that they will devour you. These people are amazing. Verse 4. Now Ammon and his brethren see this work of destruction. Among those whom they so dearly beloved, and among those who had so dearly beloved them, they'd been treated like angels sent from God to save them from everlasting destruction. That's exactly what they were. Angels came to us and changed us, and now we are going to be angels and come to everyone else. But when Ammon and his brothers saw this great work of destruction, they were moved with compassion. Remember the word, come with passion, feel or suffer. Compassion is to suffer with them. Remember the first counsel that they had together earlier on? About what, what are we going to do? We're here. We're with you. We're not just finishing our mission and heading home to Zarahemla with the Cush life as sons of the former king. We're one of you. So what are we going to do? We have compassion here. So here's the plan they suggest. Verse 5. Let's gather together the people of the Lord and we'll go down to the land of Zarahemla to our brethren, the Nephites. We'll flee out of the hands of our enemies so that we're not destroyed. You see, it's we. It's not just you guys are about to be destroyed, so you ought to do something. It's not we're going to be destroyed if we don't do something about this. So let's go to Zarahemla. Believe me, I got some connections there. But the king is concerned about that in verse 6. The king says to them, Notice he's not named. Someone must have risen in the stead of King Anti-Nephi-Lehi. But again, if the main goal of the Lamanites the first round was to destroy the king, we can probably rest assured that he was among the first victims. Anyway, this king says, that's not an option. We can't go home with you because we're not, we're not you. We're not Nephites. I know you feel like one of us. We really want to feel like one of you. We, we, we are one of you as far as disciples of Christ is concerned. We, we believe, but we're not Nephites. And the Nephites will destroy us because of the many murders and sins we have committed against them. Do you understand? Especially those who have lived their entire lives as members of the church, especially if you've lived in Latter-day Saint heavy areas, 
it can often be so easy to, be, to go with the flow when you're part of the majority. But to be a minority, or in this case, to be new to a minority, minorities within the minority, this is hard. It's almost like they're saying, you know, we're no longer really Lamanites. We left that name behind even. But we're not really Nephites either. Maybe there's the anti and the anti-Nephi Lehi's. We are over against them, facing them. We want to be one of them, but we're not. We're Lamanites by birth, even if we're Nephites by conviction. And conversion and forgiveness can wash away sins and stains vertically. God remembers them no more, but the Nephites haven't forgotten. That just might be the hardest part. God has let the former me go. But sometimes other people hold me to it. They chain my present to my past and hold my future hostage in the process. So often converts feel, I'm no longer a non-member, but am I really a member yet? I don't know. I even feel for Joseph Smith in the three years between first vision and coming of the angel Moroni. God had told him what not to do. You're not to join any other church. Okay, I'm not one of them. But he was not yet told what to do. There was no church for him to join and no work yet for him to accomplish. No wonder he got into some problems during those three years. Sometimes we help people join the church by telling them all the don'ts and the nots and you're not allowed to without helping them know, well, this is what you do and this is how we live. You've been converted to the Lord. Now let's introduce you to some of the traditions of the faithful, like we saw in an earlier chapter. Now, Ammon is unfazed by this, but he does recognize what they're up against. So he says in 7, I will go and inquire of the Lord. How's that sound? If he says go, will you go? And the king says in 8, well, yes. If the Lord saith unto us go, we will go down unto our brethren. Now, I'm still concerned about how they're going to react. But if God tells us to, we're willing to go. I mean, if we were willing to stay and be slaughtered by the Lamanites, then what's the difference? Of course, we'll have the courage to go to the Nephites too, even if they would want to destroy us. But here's one way that we might be able to get out of that and keep ourselves from destruction and keep our Nephite brethren from attacking us. We will be their slaves. That's our plan. We will be their slaves until we repair unto them the many murders and sins which we have committed against them. Seems like a great idea. In fact, this is exactly what the prodigal son was thinking. I abandoned my father. I asked for my inheritance early. You don't get your inheritance until your dad is dead, which means I treated him as one who was dead to me. Talk about many murders, right? I've wasted my inheritance in riotous living. I have sinned against the memory of my father. I took what he gave me and wasted it in things that he would never have spent money on himself. But here I am about to be destroyed, this famine in this far country, me among the pigs, so what can I do? I know I've burned the bridge. I know I can never be my father's son again. Perhaps I can be my father's servant. He is kind to the servants. If we can just go and be slaves to the Nephites, then they won't destroy us. See, there's two problems with this, though. First, he said it in 8, we'll be slaves until we repair unto them. Now, I'm glad that he's thinking of restitution as part of his repentance. But when he specifically lists murder, how do you repair that? Maybe that's why murder is such a damning sin. 
because there's no way for us to perform restitution. We can't make it up to someone. We can't bring their loved one back. So what do you mean you're going to repair? Repairing is impossible. That's the first problem. The second problem he admits in verse 9. We don't really do slavery back in Zarahemla. It's against the law of our brethren, which was established by my father, that there should be any slaves among them. So you understand the two reasons why we can't do that? Because repairing is impossible and slavery is not allowed. Now think back to the prodigal son. He can't even get the words out of his mouth to tell his father, I want to be your servant. Dad just jumps straight to the chase. We need a robe, a ring, a fatted calf. My son, not my servant, my son who was dead is alive. Come, come back. But I don't have my inheritance. Oh, you don't need it. That's okay. I, I, I'll, I'll pay you, but you can't pay it back. And I'm not asking you to. Well, then let me be your servant. I don't believe in that. You're my son. I think too often when we have a coming to ourselves moment, like the prodigal son did, and we want to return to God, we want to make up for lost time. We want to make up for our sins. We basically say to the Lord, throw ourselves at his feet and say, I will be your slave until I have repaired everything I've done wrong. But don't you see the two problems are still staring us in the face? Making up to God for our sins? He already suffered for them, infinitely and eternally. We cannot reforge the broken chain of broken law. So what are we supposed to do? It saddens me to see people. I'm just, I'm going to work and serve and try until I've paid God back for everything he's done. No, that's the whole reason King Benjamin taught all that he did about being unprofitable servants, which is what we will always be. It's why God immediately blesses us to pay us, to maintain debt on our level so he can maintain gift and love on his. My father doesn't believe in slavery. That's not why we serve. It's not why we obey. That's not the reason behind our works. We can't pay him back. So accept the gift. Jesus doesn't believe in slavery anyway. What are we left with then? The same thing they were left with. End of nine. Just go down and rely upon the mercies of our brethren. In our case, our brother our elder brother, Jesus Christ. You don't have to pay him back. You can't. He wouldn't allow it. Just rely on his mercy. Accept the gift. Let your guilt be swept away. Well, the king is still hesitant. Verse 10, he says, well, you said you'd inquire. Let's, let's stick with that plan, shall we? Inquire of the Lord. If he says go, we will. Otherwise, we'll just perish right here. If we're going to perish in either place, let's just leave the Nephites out of this entirely. Well, verse 11, Ammon does go and inquire of the Lord. And the Lord says in 12, get this people out of this land, that they perish not. Satan has great hold on the hearts of the Amalekites. There's the ultimate obstruction that keeps free access of God's word away from where it needs to go. And those Amalekites stir up the Lamanites to anger against their brethren to slay them. Therefore, get thee out of this land. And blessed are this people in this generation, for I will preserve them. Now, the promise is there. I will preserve them. But there's a whole lot of work that goes into it. Verse 12. No wonder this is a synergy, a companionship. God wants to bless us. He uses us to make sure those blessings take place. Thus, it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. 
13, Ammon goes back and tells the king what the Lord has said, and so they start mobilizing. 14, they gather together everything to be able to go. They leave the land of Nephi, and they head through the wilderness to the land of Zarahemla. They come near the borders of the land, and it's then, it's like they just drove cross-country, and they pull up into the driveway of the friend's house, and the friend says, oh wait, um, before we move in, let me just, can you wait in the car for a second? I'm just going to run in and make sure with mom and dad that it's okay that you stay. And again, you just picture these roommates going, whoa, whoa, wait. You, they don't even know we're here. You said we could move in. We'd have a place to stay. You said, well, yeah, I've assumed that's the case. My parents are really nice. We got room in the basement. I mean, it, it should be fine. What? There's no turning back now. What are we going to do? Now, remember, they had gotten permission from God, but they hadn't gotten permission from the Nephites yet. It's one thing for God to say, I'll preserve you. It's another thing for the Nephites to say, yeah, come on in. So Ammon in verse 15 says, Behold, I and my brethren will go forth into the land of Zarahemla, and ye shall remain here. Stay in the car. We'll just take, take a second. We will try the hearts of our brethren, whether they will that ye shall come into their land. Oh, great. Talk about... No longer being non-members, but not yet being members. No longer in the land of Nephi, but not yet in the land of Zarahemla. Talk about stuck in this borderland. That's the life of conversion to the church. I'm so amazed by people that have the courage and faith to do it. Verse 16, as Ammon was going forth into the land, he and his brethren met Alma over in the place of which has been spoken. This was a joyful meeting. We now have caught up to what we saw at the beginning of Alma chapter 17. Remember, after 14 years, they come together and it's like, oh, we're brethren and we're still brethren in the Lord. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. Alma's been coming back from whipping the church into shape in all these areas. Ammon and his brethren are coming back from their missions. This incredible reunion. In 17, the joy of Ammon was so great, we've seen how great his joy could be, so buckle up. Even that he was full, it, it seems to brim often, right? He was swallowed up in the joy of his God even to the exhausting of his strength, and he fell again to the earth. Lamoni would have understood. Lamoni's wife would have understood. Lamoni's servants would have understood. This is just kind of how Ammon does it. He's emotional. He feels things deeply. Verse 18, wasn't this exceeding joy? Oh yeah, this is the joy which none receiveth, save it be the truly penitent and humble seeker of happiness. This is Mormon giving second witness to what Ammon had just said back in chapter 26. Nobody knows these things but those that are prepared to receive it. The natural man cannot know the spiritual things of God. Only the spiritual person can. They're spiritually discerned. I actually love the phrase, the peace that passeth understanding. It, there's a peace, there's a joy, there's a rejoicing, there's a happiness, there's a, I don't know, just this depth of feeling that passeth understanding. It's like you can't get it. it pa it's past understanding. Or maybe it surpasses understanding. It's even better than what I could possibly explain. If you haven't felt it, you're, you just won't get it. If you've felt it, then you know what I'm talking about. In 19, the joy of Alma was also great, truly great. Aaron, Omner, Himni, all of them, great joy. But their joy was not that to exceed their strength. I always laugh at that. It's like Alma and the other sons of Mosiah are looking at each other going like, oh, hey, don't get me wrong. I I'm happy too. Love. Lo so good to see you again. I I'm just not a fainter, okay? 
don't mistake my consciousness for lack of excitement that we're together. I mean, great to see you guys. Love you. Just, just not a fainter. Now, I don't know if Ammon is still passed out or not, but in 20, Alma brings his brethren back to the land of Zarahemla, even to his own house. Not sure if Amulek is still hanging out there or not. Remember, that's what he did with Amulek also after his mission. Why don't you come home with me and I will minister to you. Well, same thing with these friends. Come back and stay with me in my own house. And then they go and talk to the chief judge to explain what's going on. Now, I don't know how long this whole thing has taken. But I just, again, I just have this mental image of the, the roommate still waiting in the car. You know, the, there's these poor anti-Nephi-Lehi's there on the border of the land going, um... This is taking a while. Wonder if Ammon had another one of his fainting spells. Wonder if the Nephites are fainting over their quest that's about to be made. But however long it takes, they go talk to the chief judge. And in 21, he sends a proclamation throughout all the land. He wants to know the voice of the people. Again, there is no king that can just say, this is how we're going to do it. That ended with dad, right? This is now the will of the people, which is better this way. Acceptance and equality and forgiveness cannot be forced upon an unwilling mind or heart. It has to change from within. So let me ask you, can you accept? Will you forgive? Can you trust their change toward you and therefore change toward them? Well, 22, the voice of the people comes. And it says this, Behold, we will give up the land of Jershon, which is on the east by the sea which joins the land Bountiful, which is on the south of the land Bountiful. And this land, Jershon, is the land which we will give unto our brethren for an inheritance. There's a little geography in there too. And actually, the geography means a lot here. Even before we see it, they called them our brethren. That's a good sign. They're no longer laughing Ammon and his brethren to scorn over even the thought that these people could change. They no longer want to destroy them and their iniquity. And since there's no iniquity in them left to destroy, well, there's no need to destroy them either. But I do love the sacrifice. We will clear out territory in Jershon, assuming some Nephites were already living there. Or perhaps if it was unoccupied, but it was part of Nephite territory, we'll give that whole area as a land of inheritance to our brethren. And then this, 23. And this is where we need to know our geography at least a little. 23 says, Behold, we will set our armies between the land Jershon and the land Nephi. Now stop there for a second. I've often done this with students before, assuming that they don't remember the geography really well, kind of picturing who they'll assume is living in the land of Nephi. So kind of like on the board, you would kind of draw some circles and go, okay, over here's the land of Nephi, and here's the land of Jershon, and we're going to, you know, however they're situated, and we're going to put an army right in between, Okay. And again, especially with younger groups, to ask, what does placing the army here say about the Nephites? Now, I'm banking on them assuming that the land of Nephi is where the Nephites live. But they haven't lived there for a long time. Not since King Mosiah I left the land of Nephi at the Lord's instruction and hightailed it off and ended up in the land of Zarahemla. Nephites live in the land of Zarahemla now. It's Lamanites that live in the land of Nephi. But if they've forgotten that, and just jump to the conclusion that Nephites must be living in the land of Nephi, then they say, okay, well, here we are in the land of Nephi, and we'll give you the land of Jershon, and we're going to put our armies right in between. What would that suggest? We don't trust your conversion. You're still not us. You're not like us. You're Lamanites, and Lamanites don't change. 500 years of hatred isn't solved with a baptism. 
So we're watching our backs for the first sign of you stepping out of line, going to your real nature. I mean, forgive us for doubting you, but I think we have every reason to be a little careful. But again, that's wrong geography. So now let's do it the right way. I think setting up the wrong way brings the right way even into clearer relief. So if the land of Nephi is where the Lamanites live, and the Nephites say, we'll give you the land of Jershon, and we'll place our army between Jershon and Nephi, what are they doing now? We'll protect you. And assuming that Jershon is somewhere between Zarahemla and Nephi, and putting their army on this side of Jershon, that leaves no army between Jershon and Zarahemla to protect them from these new converts, just in case their conversion isn't what we think it might be. Well, the fact they put their army there instead of here says they do trust their conversion. I love that. How do we feel about new converts coming in, less actives returning to the fold, people who say they've changed? Can we accept them? Can we trust their commitment, their conversion, their change? Can we protect them from others instead of feeling like we need to protect ourselves from them? It becomes clear after that first phrase in 23. Let's set our armies there that we may protect our brethren in the land of Jershon. This we will do for our brethren on account of their fear to take up arms against their brethren. All kinds of brethren here, right? Lest they should commit sin. And this, their great fear, came because of their sore repentance, which they had on account of their many murders and their awful wickedness. Now, I, I want to stop and just chew on that for a second, because it seems to contradict some of what we saw back in chapter 24 from King Anti-Nephi-Lehi. Remember, why were they burying their swords back then? Over and over he talks about this is a testimony to God and to others. It's a testimony. It didn't seem like it was done out of fear of committing sin. Now, there may have been some of that. There does seem to be some suggestion of, again, I fear to sin. And that's a good fear to have, right? And I think, honestly, the bigger the repentance, the greater fear we end up having about returning to sin. That's actually a good sign of godly sorrow. I think that's even one of the words Paul uses in 2 Corinthians when he describes godly sorrow, that it brings zeal and it brings revenge. I think he says it brings fear also. I'll have to look that one up. So I, I'm okay with us using that word. But don't forget, these are Nephites talking here. So I wonder if they're putting words into the anti-Nephi-Lehi's mouths. If they're looking at this situation from their own lens, thinking, well, why would anybody not fight? Oh, they must be scared of being punished for returning back to old ways. Yeah, it's, I mean, they're, they're doing their very best to keep themselves from falling back into the old traps. But yeah, this, this is a tough one to overcome. They're, they're, they're this close to slipping back into their own old ways. But they weren't. The fear of sin thing seems to be a lesser issue than, no, this is a witness. This is a testimony. I think we're actually learning more about the Nephite mentality than the anti-Nephi-Lehite mentality. It's as if the Nephites are going, yeah, because people, we're going to trust their change, but can people really change? I mean, you've got to guard against all your old mistakes. Recidivism is real, right? I get that too. But I don't think the Nephites have any idea. They have hope. They have faith. Again, they're, they're willing to risk it with the placement of their armies. But 
I think these Nephites, these lifelong members, maybe have never had such a mighty change to see just how different these Lamanite converts really are. They come to the right conclusion, but I do wonder if their reasoning is just a little bit off. They do make a wise decision in 24, though. They say, this we will do unto our brethren, that they may inherit the land Jershon. We will guard them from their enemies with our armies. But here's one, it's not even a catch, but here's a condition. On condition that they will give us a portion of their substance to assist us that we may maintain our armies. Now that only seems just, right? It only seems fair. I mean, you're not going to provide any soldiers, so can you at least provide some, some support? Especially if our army is actually going to be closer to you than to us. Uh, could you at least help feed them or things like that? We'll be sending supplies too, but can you at least provide for them? But let's go a little deeper here. On the one hand, it's, well, this arrangement will be better for us. Again, it's only fair. We're not asking you to, to break your covenant or put yourself in danger of sin. But again, the, the entire burden is going to be on us. That just doesn't seem right. But it's not just that it's going to be better for the Nephite army. It will be better for the anti-Nephi-Lehite converts too. Because they will know that they are contributing. That they're not being treated in some kind of a, oh, well, we, you need us and we're here for you. It was a recognition of, and you have something to offer as well. You see, this isn't patronizing. That's the biggest danger of like government welfare. Just handouts. You can't do anything for yourself. And so let us do all of this for you. See, it's not just the injustice of that. It's the lack of mercy in that. Interesting irony. The most just thing we can do for us is to require that you contribute. But the most merciful thing we can do for you is ask that you contribute too. You see, then you have a stake in the game. You're engaged. You're a part of this. You see, it really is better to give than to just receive. That's why in church welfare, as opposed to government welfare, a bishop will often talk with the recipients of assistance well, what can you offer also? Not to pay the church back, but who can you serve and how can you contribute and be a part of things? See, we're trying to lift you out, not just of your outward surroundings, but of an inner sense that you are needy, that you live at the mercy of someone else, that someone else is doing everything for you. We want to help you grow out of any kind of sense of entitlement, a sense that you depend on other people and can never really be independent on your own. There's some interesting parallels to current events there that I think are fascinating. It's a dangerous thing. It is only a position of privilege that enables someone to say, oh, let me give, 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 and not ask for anything in return. That maintains a hierarchy. Instead of saying, I know there are things you need and I can offer, but there are things that you can contribute that I need and that puts us on a more level playing field. There's more equality there. I think there's something to, to chew on there in verse 24. Now in 25, with that great news, Ammon can rush back and say to his roommates, you, you can come on in. You, you can get out of the car. He returns to the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi. Alma's with them this time. They go back into the wilderness where they'd pitch their tents. They make known all these things. And then an interesting detail, Alma relates unto them his conversion with Ammon and Aaron and his brethren. Now, part of me wants to say, wouldn't they have known that already? 
I mean, these guys have been living among the Lamanites for the last 14 years. Surely they've heard all their stories. I'm sure most of my students have heard all of mine, right? Then again, does this come as news to them? There's this funny thing in the church sometimes where it's like, well, we shouldn't be autobiographical. You even hear sometimes apostles, when they tell stories about their own lives, apologizing for that. And me, me I'm like, no, 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 please tell me what you've been through. How did you get to this point? I want to know you. Helps me understand your message. Again, it's not about us. It's about him. But if we're working together on this, it's like I said at the very beginning today, there's a relatability on the horizontal aspect, especially if an Alma or an Ammon or an Aaron or his brethren can say, yeah, we were lost causes too. No one thought we would change. We did. Nobody thought you would change. You did. They let us back in to their lives. They're letting you into their lives now. I just love that Alma's not shy about that. We'll see just how not shy he is when he tells the story again to his sons later on in this book. But to tell his conversion story, in some ways, it's one of the best ways to truly come to know someone. Tell me about your connections with God. I know that's personal. Some people might not be ready to go, go there. But you really want to come to know someone? See their soul. I still remember one of the first dinners with my mother-in-law. My wife and I weren't even engaged yet, but her mom came out to visit and we went out to eat. She took us out to kind of get to know me. And when I found out that she was a convert to the church, that still is in my memory, this is 20 plus years ago, one of the first things I learned about the woman that would eventually become my mother-in-law was her conversion story. What an introduction to an incredible soul. I'm glad that Alma let out with that as he met these wonderful converts too. Now, verse 26, what great joy it caused among them. Of course it would. Rejoicing in this, God loves us just like he loves you. So they go down to Jershon, they take possession of the land, and they're called the people of Ammon. At least they're called that by the Nephites. Again, it's interesting that these two names would coexist. How did the Lamanites see themselves as anti-Nephi-Lehites? Facing you or wanting to be a part of you. How did the Nephites see them? Oh, these are, these are Ammon's converts. These are the people of Ammon. Now, again, I don't want to read too much into this or potentially malign good Nephites that are bringing them into their lands, but there is something about calling people something that they'd prefer a different name. I know you see yourselves as this, but we see you as this. And it's still a good thing. You're people of Ammon. But that is one step removed, I still think. Oh, these are Ammon's converts, as opposed to these are people like Nephi and like Lehi, just like we are. Is there a tendency sometimes in wanting to keep people at bay? Wanting to establish some kind of a hierarchy? Again, I don't, I don't, again I'm hesitant to read too much into this. And maybe it's just all that's going on in mid-2020. But that's what scripture studies for. That's why it's always worth coming back and seeing it through current lenses. And it'll be different a year from now. And I'll see it differently in a decade. But right now... I just see something about, well, I know you say that you're just like Nephites and Lehites. Then instead of taking the Lehi-Layman route, you're taking the Lehi-Nephi route. Well, you, you didn't originally. We did. We're, th we're thrilled you're here. You, you're converts. We accept that conversion. But Ammon's one of us. And you, but you're, you belong to Ammon. Ammon belongs to us. You belong to Ammon. So you see how that works? Well, yeah, that's great instead of 
Lehi and Nephi. That's what you want to be called? Perfect. Then that's who you are to us too. In fact, we are of Lehi through Nephi as well. No hierarchy, no second-class citizens, just fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of faith. No difference here. Actually, there was a difference, though. A good one. 27. They were among the people of Nephi. They were numbered among the people who were of the church of God. And they were distinguished. There is still something to tell a difference here. And perhaps we would jump to the conclusion, well, yeah, they were Lamanites, so their skin was darker. Assuming that was the mark that was placed upon them. So how do you spot an anti-Nephi-Lehite from a Nephite? Or how do you distinguish between a converted Lamanite and a lifelong Nephite? Well, you just look at skin color. It's pretty obvious. Nope, that's not what they used. That was not the distinguishing feature. You see, that would still be, in many minds, a hierarchical distinction like downward. Instead, their distinction was an upward one. There wasn't a sense of, well, these people are in some way less than. It's like, no, actually, they're greater than. Verse 27, they were distinguished for their zeal towards God and also towards men. There's the two great commandments always coming hand in hand. They were perfectly honest and upright in all things. They were firm in the faith of Christ, even unto the end. We've seen that a couple times already. Wow, this much faith, you anti-Nephi-Lehi's? I haven't seen this much even among the Nephites. Remember, that's what Ammon said to King Lamoni's wife. You have faith like I've never seen back home. To be set apart in that way, instead of by some kind of external indicator. I hope we can see beyond skin deep to the things that really distinguish us. Remember Martin Luther King's famous phrase, not the color of our skin, but the content of our character. That verse describes it perfectly. We are not distinguishing one from another based on the color of their skin. We are distinguishing people based on the content of their character. And the content of these converts' character is incredible. It sets them apart in higher ways, rather than the way we usually want to set people apart in lower ones. 28 explains it more. They looked upon the shedding of the blood of their brethren with the greatest abhorrence. They could not be prevailed upon, never, to take up arms against their brethren. They never did look upon death with any degree of terror for their hope and views of Christ and the resurrection. That's how death was swallowed up to them by the victory of Christ over it. Back to Abinadi, I think that's why chapter 16 of Mosiah is so powerful an introduction to chapter 17. 16 is Abinadi's testimony of the victory of Christ over death. 17 is Abinadi's martyrdom. I think he was preaching to himself in that sermon. Well, they could do the same. No terror. Remember Dan Jones asleep, well, not asleep, next to Joseph Smith on the floor of Carthage Jail? And not being able to sleep himself, Joseph rolls over in the dark and says to Dan, are you afraid to die? By then, I think Joseph knew what was coming. He had gone as a lamb to the slaughter. But Dan Jones' response in the dark, do you think it's come to that? Well, engaged in such a cause, I should think that death would hold no 
terror. Wow. And that's when Joseph prophesies, well, you won't die here. You'll yet serve a mission in Wales. And he did with incredible effect. But here are these anti-Nephi-Lehi's with the faith of a Dan Jones. There's no terror in death. That's why we can go out and meet our enemies. That's why we can prostrate ourselves before them and call upon God in the very act of being massacred. Because there's no fear. We only fear to commit sin. We only fear, there's, no, there's two deaths, but only one of them is scary. We had already experienced spiritual death, but we overcame the curse. We're no longer separate from him. And having overcome spiritual death, physical death holds no terror at all. It's swallowed up. 29, therefore, they would suffer death in the most aggravating and distressing manner, which could be inflicted by their brethren, before they would take the sword or scimitar to smite them. They were a zealous and beloved people, a highly favored people of the Lord. I love the combination of that in 30. I think some people are zealous and they end up offending people all the time. Other people are beloved by others. They're just so good and fun to be with, but they're sometimes lacking in zeal. It's almost like they're picking between the two great commandments, which we've seen over and over in these chapters. Well, I'm going to be connected to God, and to heck with anybody who's not quite as connected to him as I am. Oh, I'm going to be zealous and make sure people know about it. It, it leaves people feeling silently judged. And while the outsider might respect that person, or maybe even admire them. They seldom love them. There's even the stereotypical zealous saint that is so judgmental of everyone else. No wonder they're not beloved. And then there's the stereotypical flip side of someone that's so beloved by other people that their life of the party is, but they've kind of diminished their connection to the master in the meantime. That's a good goal to aim for. To love God to the point of being zealous but to love our neighbor in such a way that they know they can safely love us in return. Those two are not mutually exclusive, no matter what the stereotypes seem to suggest.